We're going to be continuing our series here in Ephesians, if you want to head that direction. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And uh, just before we get to that text, we'll say, obviously, our community experienced a tragic shooting this week. And um, by God's grace, we don't know of anyone in our body that was involved in that, but certainly those in our community have been. And as we're connected to them, we're seeing how we can support them and pray for them and provide any care and follow-up. So if you know anyone that just is hurting, that maybe doesn't have a church family caring for them, please connect us to them. We'd love to uh, just bring the hands and feet of Christ to them in any way we can uh, during this time. And certainly let's be just lifting up the community that God's peace prevail and he would use that meant for evil for good as our redeeming God is in the habit of doing. Amen? Well, if you'd stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, reads this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, we come uh, to this text, at least I do, with mixed emotions this week. Just a heaviness at the depravity of man displayed right before our eyes. And yet we don't have to look to a shooting in our community to see that. We can look to our own hearts, if we're honest, and we can see that there's evil there that must be rooted out by the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit at work within us and that we might be liberated from its power, the powers of darkness, the power of the prince of this era, as this text tells us. We were all dead. We were all walking according to the flesh and, and the world. None of us have any room to stand in judgment over even the most horrific things that we see around us. We're capable of those things apart from your mercy and your grace. So Lord, teach us through this text. Shape our minds, our mindset, our hearts, our perspective, Rain on us a deep humility and gratitude and allow us to respond in hopefulness and obedience. God, I pray that as I preach this text this morning, I would decrease. I must, Lord Jesus, you must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this text is a weighty text. It's one of the kind of theologically robust giants of our New Testament and uh, it's a critically important text, I think, for the Christian to understand. I think this is one of those texts that maybe gets brushed over because of um, it says some harsh things about man in his sinfulness, man apart from God, man in his flesh. Um, in terms of our lostness, our blindness, it minces no words. It calls us spiritually dead apart from and unless there is an act of divine intervention that God does on our behalf from his mercy that would be the definition of grace going forward. 
And so somehow this tries to get explained away, uh, oftentimes by Christians, even in the church, as opposed to embraced. I think this is one of those foundational pillars of understanding of the gospel. This is where you got to start if you really want to have a life that is um, passionately in pursuit of Christ. I don't think we'll ever get there by effort. I think we'll get there by hearts broken over who we are, who God is, and what He has done on our behalf. So this is a foundational text. I've got some friends who have been through uh, AA, some of them uh, who are in AA right now, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, they've shared with me, I haven't been to one of those meetings, uh, though it might be helpful for me to see this in person. It sounds powerful. They say that in those meetings, uh, one of the things they start with is uh, continually saying their name, uh, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And they say you have to start that way in these meetings. Everybody has to start that way. And I asked one of my buddies, I said, now, why do you think that is? I know it's kind of one of the steps, but why, why, do, you, why, is it, why do you think that is? And he said, well, I'm telling you, if you've been in my shoes, this is him talking to me, if you've been in my shoes, you would know that the reason you got to that meeting is because for a long time you were unwilling to admit you had a problem. So step one, you've got to start by admitting you've got a problem. And it's not just a little problem. It's not just kind of a problem. It's not just sometimes a problem that you're, you're, you're sick that you've got a disease that you cannot overcome in and of your own strength. So you're here acknowledging, I'm sick, I'm helpless, I need help. I, now, there's hope from that place. That's a great, so first thing he said was, it makes everybody there really humble. Like, you're not there trying to save face. The first thing you say, here's my name and I'm call it. Like, the first thing you do is acknowledge your weakness and your brokenness. So you got to check your ego at the door. And then the second thing he said it does is it really unifies everybody in the group. Like it doesn't matter how successful you've been or how much of a failure you think you've been. It doesn't matter how old you are. A college student could be in there. A 65-year-old CEO could be in there. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or what ethnicity you're like. Nothing matters. Everybody is on common ground, all in this together, all broken and in need. Welcome to the church. Hey, I don't know how we got pompous and self-righteous and here's the morally elite among a community of broken, but that's just all upside down. That, we, that our very presence here, if we understand the truth of God's Word, is an acknowledgement. I'm helpless, I'm weak, I'm broken, I've got a sin disease that I can't fix apart from God's grace intervening on my behalf, I'm dead. And my name's Ken Vaughn, by the way. I'm Ken Vaughn, and all that's true of me. And that's every one of our stories. So the church is a place of humility. You check your ego at the door when you come in. It's a place of brutal honesty. You gotta be able to be honest here. You can't be honest here. You can't, I mean, you're among people who get your problem, because we all have it. So you can be honest. You don't have to fake it, you don't have to lie. And there's going to be unity because of our humility, because of our honesty, we're in this together. All right, so this passage anchors us in the truth of our weakness and our need. We don't need to try to brush past this. We need to, we need to embrace it. So he starts this way, Paul writing to the Ephesians. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. He's talking about your nature. If you want to make a note there, your nature 
was alien to God. And by the way, you know, this is often said, and it's true, if you look up what dead means, you don't get much help here. In the Greek, it just says dead. It doesn't, it doesn't explain it away in the original, like Paul didn't mean something less than dead. So that you were spiritually dead. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. Uh, a dead man can't save himself. Y'all ever notice that? Now, an almost dead man can. That's why you got to be careful not to try to, uh, you know, dumb this down. Because then the almost dead guy can be the hero of his own story. He might need an assist from somebody. He might need a good Samaritan and an almost dead guy. We can figure something out. That's not what this is talking about. It just says you're dead. So first thing, if you're a saved person here today, if you're converted, born again, Christ follower, affections in your heart for Jesus Christ, knowledge of your sin, grief over your own sin, the first thing you notice is, to God be the glory, because I once was dead. God has done something for me that I couldn't do for myself. I was dead. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So your deadness was, spiritually speaking, um, the extent of it, if we can uh, help to explain it a little further, the extent of it was that you were, uh, your mind was darkened. So you didn't have any understanding of what is theologically true in your lost condition, in your spiritual bankruptcy, in the holiness of God. There was no appreciation for that. There was no gravity to that. That didn't mean anything to you. Probably not even an acknowledgement other than maybe some, you know, uh, religious tradition that you might have been raised in, to the spiritual world in general, to the kingdom of God at work in the world in general. Probably just an ignorance or an ignoring of or an easily distracted by that which your nature was awakened to, the things of the flesh, the things of this world. So you were lost, you were blind, you were dead. The extent was that our minds were darkened, our hearts were callous. Somebody tried to share Christ with you and you were spiritually dead. It, it's, it's, it's just water falling off. I mean, it just rolls right off the shed. Like you got, there's, there's no softness. It's rocky ground. There's no uh, soft soil for the seed to go in. Because you're dead. And, uh, and it's a will that's alien to God. Your desire wasn't to please God, obey God. You might have denied his existence. You might just not have cared. Uh, you might have thought, well, hey, I'm as good as the next guy. Surely, surely it'll all work out in the end. Whatever it was, you thought in a uh, way that suppressed truth, and you're, you were alien to God in your will, and you were submissive. This is the hard part. You were submissive to Satan. We're going to get there in verse 2. But when you're away from and opposed to God and the will of God in your life, you're walking in the way of the prince of this air who is Satan. You're deceived, you're darkened, you're distracted, and you're enslaved. You're, you cannot fix or help or awaken yourself. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to leave. So that's the extent. Uh, how did that deadness, uh, what were the effects? The effects were that you were guilty before God. You were as one who stood condemned. Yet again in the church, those of us who stand in grace all stood together condemned before God's intervention on our behalf. And that condemnation expressed itself in idolatry and immorality of all kinds. It, it worked its way into our speech. It worked its way into our, uh, our passions, uh, our money, and how we spent it and how we thought of it, uh, in the formation of little g gods and our view of sexuality and our marriages, our parenting, 
Every, every portion of your life was contaminated. If I invited you to a chili cook-off or a chili cookout next weekend and, and Mr. Jim Holmes right here in the front row, he, I said, Mr. Jim, would you cook us some chili? I've invited the church and, and just typical as he is, he's hospitable, he'd say, sure, I'll do that. And uh, if I was over there talking to Jim and you guys were there excited on a, on a crisp fall uh, evening for some good chili and I'm talking to uh, Jim and he's, he's just got a huge vat of chili and a little bit out of character, but he also has a big dip in, all right? And so he's got his spit cup and he's got his big vat of chili and, and Jim's just, he's just, you know, working that chili and every once in a while he's spitting in that cup and he's talking to me and he's working that chili, he's spitting in that cup. Sorry, Jim, I hope you're okay with this analogy. I just chose you because you're on the front row. It could have been anyone. But listen, we're all in this together, okay? Fight the self-righteous urge to announce your innocence. All right. So Jim's just spitting and he's, he's right. And then if all of a sudden we're in conversation, all of a sudden he spits in the chili. And he caught himself and I caught him and then he said, he looked at me and said, now, maybe, maybe I don't tell anybody. I don't know. But I guarantee you one thing, how much of that chili am I going to eat? I'm going to pass on the chili. And they say, well, why? It's a massive vat of chili. That was just one little spittle from, from Jim. And I say, no, nah, somehow it's all in there. Okay? I don't want it. It is fully contaminated. A lot of times we as Christians think of our sin as like, man, I'm just, I mean, I got a few things. I got a bad habit or two. I got a pet sin. I got, you know, I got a few things I can't, but man, I'm doing pretty good. Like I'm pretty much righteous, just a couple bad. You got to understand, the dip is in the chili. You're contaminated all the way through. One spit. And by the way, it was in your nature before you were born. It came from Adam, from the garden, that you're in the seed of man who rebelled against God. And your nature is turned from him in disobedience to him. That's your nature. And then you and I have uh, piled on plenty of our own sins volitionally along the way. Well, this says you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Walked means you weren't actively fighting against those things. You walked in them. It was a lifestyle. That's the word. You were, you were enslaved to it. You wouldn't have known any different. A dog returns to his vomit. That's not just me being grotesque. That's Peter writes that in his epistles. That that was true of you. You're going to act according to the flesh because you are a carnal, fleshly led man. Mind, darkened, heart, callous, will alien to God. Following the prince of this world. By the way, uh, there's someone behind this. All right? He is Satan, the one that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, who's still at work uh, fanning the flames of darkness in your and my heart. It says that he's a prince of this world. Now, we obviously understand that as um, this, uh, uh, this earth, this place that God has us temporarily before he establishes his kingdom uh, in a new Jerusalem that will be our final uh, dwelling place for all eternity. But today, there's this world, and in this world, there's an operating system that's opposed to God. Ever since the fall, it wasn't always like this. This world wasn't always fallen. There was the garden, and it won't always be fallen if you read Rev 21 and 22. God's redeeming that which was broken. He's making, Rev 22.5, all things new. Amen? But today, it's Narnia. It's always winter and no Christmas. And the faithful few are believing in and sharing 
that Aslan's on the move. He's coming back. And many have given up and they have submitted themselves to the mutiny of the white witch. And those that want to stand and say, no, I won't do it, Aslan's coming, they're going to be killed. They're going to be persecuted and likely killed. But if you watch the whole series, you see how things end. Does Aslan return? He does and he will. And those who are turned uh, to stone, he breathes on them and they're resurrected to new life in his presence for all eternity. It's a picture of what happens here. It's a cold world, it's a darkened world. It's under the influence of the spirit at work and the sons of disobedience. That's the power of the air, that's Satan. He's behind this. Uh, read you a verse in 2 Tim 2. Just listen to this. Here's how Paul tells Timothy. He says, God's servants gotta be careful. The Lord's servants, they need not be quarrelsome. They need to be kind to everyone. Listen to what he says. They need to patiently endure evil. Correct opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So who's responsible for your repentance? Somebody? God. Thank you, Jim. See, that's poetic right there. After poisoning our chili, you lead us to the cross. You're a dear brother. All right? Lead us to a knowledge of the truth. And listen, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you understand what the testimony of every Christian is? I was ensnared by the devil, captured by him to do his will. It was my nature. And in the extent was, I was totally dead. I was alien to God. And the effects were complete contamination and corruption of my life. That's what was true. Even if I was a good guy, the truth was I was contaminated by a sin nature, by sinful thoughts, by rebellion against God, by selfishness in my heart. In fact, you know what the world is? First John 2, 16, it says it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what I was consumed with. That's who I was. And it says, after being captured by him to do as well, God can grant repentance according to his mercy. And so, if we think about our lives, now I thought about even my own children. Some, some of you may have been saved in an early age. If you were, praise God. Some of you, this is real easy to see. Your testament, you go, man, I was, I was uh, my life was in complete open rebellion to God. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a story of some. Others, uh, hey, from when I was an early age, early age, uh, somehow I believed the truth of the story mom and dad told me of Christ coming for me. He kindled in me a, an affection for Jesus and that note, praise God. But even in your youthfulness, before God kindled that fire of affection towards Jesus, just understand, even, the, even in what uh, others may look at is the cuteness of child rebellion, there was a selfish sin nature that was flowing down the river of this world that was full of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That was true of all of us, no matter what age or no matter how flagrantly we had fouled, no matter how much um, trouble our rebellion had gotten us in, no matter how much damage we had done to our life or others, this was true. No one's apart from this story because of what age you might have come to Christ by God's grace. We were sons of disobedience, it says. 
Barnabas is called a son of encouragement. That's just saying that's what he was defined by. If you knew Barnabas, you knew what it was to be encouraged. Well, we were sons of disobedience. It wasn't just that we disobeyed. That was our identity. Who are you? Those disobedient to God. It wasn't that every act was disobedient, but you were contaminated. You were depraved. Through and through, you were dead. Spiritually speaking, you were dead. I was dead. And it says, among whom we all once lived. I'm just working slowly because Paul really just continues to say the same thing over and over just to make sure we don't uh, uh, miss it. This is all of us. This is not just me, Kenan, or the worst of us, Jim and I, all right? This is all of us. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Maybe those passions weren't very mature. Maybe you were five, six, seven years old, and it was just a, a, a fleshly selfishness. Maybe they were very mature. Maybe the passions of your flesh had produced extremely destructive fruit. Some of you are extremely wounded. Uh, there's a lot of hurt and a lot of healing that, that's got to go on because of the destruction of a, of a wake of rebellion to God behind you. By the way, a darkened world drifts further and further away from God. Romans 1 says it suppresses the truth. Think about having a beach ball and trying to keep it underwater in your pool. That beach ball wants to come up. My boys enjoy doing this. Always reminds me of Romans 1 in more ways than one. But they try to suppress that beach ball until it flops over. You know, can't keep it underwater. The truth's going to come up. But men in their flesh suppress truth. That's how we get to a place just to be honest with you, that's, how you we, that's why we live in a world today, and by the way, this is every culture and every civilization known to man since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Each has gone to the same place in our darkened, futile thinking. This is how we get to the place where we uh, legalize abortion. We, de- we, we ignore the governor of truth. We replace it with lies. We ignore the fact that Life begins at conception. That's what God has said and decreed is true. We ignore it. We suppress truth. That's how we get into a place where we uh, determine that marriage can be between uh, any two pe- uh, people, any two humans. And, and as a culture, we're to embrace that when God has clearly defined marriage. It's his institution, not ours. It's ours to corrupt, but it's his to glorify him. One man leaves his father and mother to be united to one woman, his wife for procreation, for companionship, for worship, for a display of the gospel of Christ and his bride. It's his institution, not ours. What can a darkened mind do to that? What can a corrupt will do to that? That's how we get to a place where we embrace homosexuality as a culture. So we get to a place where we determine that that which is a perversion of the gift of sexual intimacy that God has given to be enjoyed by a man and wife in marriage is... Uh, is something that uh, is, it can be somehow enjoyed outside of that context. It's a, it's a celebration of immorality. Who's behind a celebration of sexual immorality and sin? The prince of this world. Blind, lost men following the fleshly desires of their nature. That's how we can get to a place in the world where we decide to let children, four years old, choose their own gender. God has fearfully and wonderfully made them in their mother's womb, in his own image, male and female. But you suppress truth. 
You will drift to a place, a, a place of worldly thinking. Charles Rowry said, a worldly thinking is a system run by Satan that takes God out of the equation. And you will always see in that system the progression of Romans 1, a drifting away from God. We were once a part of that in all of our brilliance. We were a part of it, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And look here, we were by nature children of wrath. That's where that futility and that darkness ultimately leads. It leads in eternal condemnation away from God's presence. It leads to the pouring out of God's wrath and enduring the consequences of your rebellion forever and ever. That's what the Word of God says. That's heavy, that's hard, that's what it says. So understand what we've got in verses one through three, which some might call the most depressing verses in the Bible. That we were dead, that we were disobedient, and that we were doomed. Better yet, we were damned. Amen? Verse four, the two most wonderful words in the Bible. But God. If you've never felt the weight of those words before, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit you'd feel them right now. But God. Do you understand me? You were dead. You were darkened. You were disobedient and you were doomed. And so was I. But God. But God. God intervened. He didn't look down and see who was trying the hardest and who was paddling the fastest and who was almost there. This is not a divine assist. This is a divine intervention. He looked upon you and I in our helpless estate and he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But God. Before Christ, I was just letting sin control my life. Before Christ, I was broken, hopeless, and empty. Before Christ, I struggled with discontentment with who I was. Before Christ, I was a slave to substance addiction and shame. Before Christ, I was trying to please everyone except God, plus my own desires. Antes de Cristo, estaba perdida, llevando yo el control de mi vida. Before Christ, I was consumed with doing and saying all the right things so that people would approve of me. Before Christ drugged me out of the darkness, I was chewed up like a soup sandwich. Life before Christ was walking in darkness and completely lost. Before Christ, I was living a fake Christian life on Sunday and indulging in my sin the rest of the week. Before Christ, my life was headed to self-made destruction. Before Christ, my life was meaningless and empty. My life before Christ was a train wreck. Before Christ, my life was timid and too reliant upon the opinion of others. Before Christ, I was enslaved to alcohol addiction, but God. 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 Hey, we didn't just find the 20 worst people we could find. We threw darts. Could, doesn't matter. Anybody in here has the same story. 
Everybody's on a level playing field at the cross. I was fill in the blank. And if you stop anything short of dead, disobedient, and doomed, then you're not telling the whole truth. And there's still some shred of pride in you that wants to justify your sin and be the hero of your own story. Until you finally say, I was dead. I was darkened. I was disobedient. I was destructive. I was doomed and I was damned. But God, God being rich in mercy, every single phrase, Paul will pound the same drum. Why? Just because of his mercy, Romans 9, he looked upon you and with compassion and in mercy, meaning there's nothing you did to earn it. Not his mercy and your effort, just his mercy. Because of his great love or the great love with which he loved us. How great is the love with which he loved you? It's the love of Christ, arms wide on the cross, beaten, mocked, persecuted, and nailed. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The extent of his love is to turn his only begotten over to pay for your and my sin. He loved you with that love. He redeemed you with that blood. And in an Isaiah 6 kind of way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then jot down Isaiah 6. In an Isaiah 6 kind of way, you were awakened. Isaiah 6, it says he saw the Lord in his temple. He had a vision of God, and he was immediately struck by God's holiness. The robe of his, uh, God's train, the train of his robe, sorry, filled the whole temple. At the sound of his voice, it shook. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, his only response to God's holiness was to say, woe is me. When his eyes saw God, he was immediately overwhelmed by his wretchedness. Can I tell you, if we could just catch a glimpse of the righteousness of Christ this morning, our first instinct would be, man, am I wretched. I have been faking and lying and justifying, and I won't do it again. Woe is me. Judgment is what I deserve. And an angel takes a burning coal from the altar where sacrifices are made and touches his lips and says, your sin's been atoned for. There's been blood sacrifice for your sin. And Isaiah is overwhelmed that the holy and righteous God, who he has completely offended in every way with his wretched life, thought, and will, has redeemed him by blood. And he, set, he overhears the Trinity having a conversation saying, who shall we send to the nations? And he says, how about me? There's going to be great persecution on this mission. Send me. I'll go. That's somebody who says, my life's no longer my own. I've been bought at a price. That's somebody that says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. That's an Old Testament Christian. Somebody knows what it is to be redeemed by grace and mercy and the love which God has loved us and the redemptive sacrifice of his son. And he says again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, do you feel like we're reading the same verse over and over? Paul will not let us off the hook. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Yes, we were breathing his air, enjoying the fruit 
of life on this earth and not giving any thanks or acknowledgement to God in our hearts. We were trespassing on his good earth. Made us alive together with Christ. Do you see that God did not come alongside you and give you the strength to save yourself? He made you alive when you were dead. He he produced in you a brand new creation. He resurrected you from the dead. You go, can God resurrect somebody from the dead? Yes. Yes. And just as Jesus went to the cross and to the tomb, you and I got to go to the cross where our flesh is crucified. We got to be, it's got to be dead and buried, the spiritual corpse, and God has got to resurrect us to a new life. That's what it means to be born again. Anything less than that, or other than that, it's not salvation. God makes us alive together with Christ. I love that together. Just as Christ has been raised, Romans 6, we've been raised from the dead. And then he puts a little phrase in here, by grace you have been saved. Party wants to say, no kidding. But, a, but, but this is just an introduction. Paul wants to, st- wants to put a, a, a pen in it right here and say, that's the definition of grace. Whatever you thought it was, that's what it is. That you can be completely dead. Not swimming around and somebody throws you a preserver, but floating down the river dead. And God finds you, drags you out, puts life back into your lungs, brings you back to life. This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind, but now I see. The next verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Huh? It was grace that awakened you to the holiness of God and the wretchedness of your flesh. That was God's grace. That was the first act of God making you alive in Christ. Grace. That's our understanding of grace. It's our experience. It's our testimony of what Christ has done for us. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's past tense. He's done it. It's not that he will save you one day, he has saved you. Christ is right now, he broke the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And then he took a seat at the right hand of God the Father out of the presence of sin. You and I, when Christ has resurrected us and he's alive in us, the power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin is broken and one day we will join him in the presence of God and there will no longer be the presence of sin when we have a glorified body in that day, no longer corrupted by and susceptible to sin. He's done for us what he's done in Christ, his only begotten son. And it's as good as done. And it says so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He'll show us off in the ages to come to the angelic realm. We will be the demonstration of the power of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. It'll be us. It will be those that were dead raised to life, and the angels will glorify God who has rescued us from our pit of condemnation and placed us in Christ. Let me close just illustrating this. I saw this first from a buddy of mine who teaches at Downline and gave me a great picture, and I want to share it with you. This is going to, this is Tupperware. 
All right, here's you. All right, well, if you've ever thought of yourself as Tupperware, but in this illustration, here we are. This is you and I, and according to our text, we've got a problem, and our problem is sin. Our problem is that from the garden, from Adam and Eve forth, sin was in us. We have a sin nature. It, it, when we come out, we come out as, with a sin DNA, with, a, uh, with wills bent towards sin. Anybody that's been a parent knows it's true, very quick. Okay, they're cute for about a week, and then they're sinful, okay? And you see it, and it's hard. So sin is in you, and according to the text, it doesn't just say the sin is in us, it says what? You were dead in your trespasses in sin. Not only was sin in you, you were in sin. Now this is the estate of man. This is man dead in sin. Do you see this? Sin is in you, and you are in sin. And such is the estate of man. There we are. You know what Paul said to Timothy? You were ensnared to Satan. You were captured by him to do his will. Do you see it? But God. But God, rich in mercy, does something. It says he breaks you and I out of sin. So God on the cross, he pays the price that the power of sin is broken. He breaks us out, and he's not done yet. He doesn't just deal with sin that we are trapped in. He deals with the sin that's in us that we're enslaved to. What does Colossians 1.27 put this on the screen? It says, to them God has chose to make known how great the Gentiles to the, among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ replaces the sin in you with the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now understand this, it's not as if we don't ever sin anymore, but we have a new operating grid. We have a new software. We have a new governor. We're not blindly following the fleshly desires. That's not the sin nature ruling us. Now we have a power greater than that, the Holy Spirit in us. He leads, He guides, He shapes, He sanctifies, He grieves, He's in us. He's broken the power of sin. Now you got Christ in you. And what does the text says? Say, the text says not only that Christ is in you, it says that He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now not only is Christ in you, but you are in Christ. This phrase used seven times in verses three through 14, the greatest phrase in the Bible, that when you are washed by the blood of Christ, God sees, here's how God, you wanna know how God sees you? Can you see you? You can only see you through Christ. When God looks at you and I, he sees you and I through the blood of Christ, captured not by the snares of Satan, but by the redemptive act of grace, where he rescued us and placed Christ in us and us in Christ. Here you are. Sin was in you, and you were in sin. And now Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. And then it goes one step further, which I don't even fully understand. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Sin was in you, and you were in sin. And now Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. And Christ is in God. 
What I just shared is your testimony. It's my testimony. Can I ask you a question? Can you lose your salvation? Somebody's going to have to bust Christ out of you and you out of Christ and Christ out of God. You and I can't lose what God has done for us in Christ. Let me just read the passage again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God. God, we thank you that there's a but God in our lives. And I would say this, for anyone that is here that sees and hears your words, and, and for the first time, their ears have been opened to hear your word is truth. For the first time, there's a piercing of their heart. There's an awakening of a dead spiritual man to life. I pray that they would respond to your spirit's drawing, that they would, palms up, receive the free gift of grace that is Jesus Christ crucified for us. I pray that they would just in their seat even now, just acknowledge to you, my name is, and I am enslaved to sin. I'm sick, I'm broken, I'm wretched. And I need sin busted out of me and me busted out of sin and Christ supplanted in my heart and me supplanted in his. And God, I pray that you would do the work of salvation, that you would redeem a lost person in this place today. And for those that are in Christ and Christ in us and in God, that our hearts would be full, not of self-righteousness, not of pride. In fact, that every shred of self-righteous pridefulness would be just, just pushed from us, just that we'd be rid of it, that it would be destroyed, and that we may be an honest, humble, grateful, grace-filled, spirit-filled people that demonstrate the power of the gospel and how we live our lives. I'd ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.